Okay, proceeding for today then. We're going to uh, finish up your papers on Chapter 7 and proceed to some of the basic stuff on 8. Now, if you were in chapel today, did you notice the great Level 2 statement by Leo Sanchez in the sermon? It was approximately this. He was talking about uh, Pentecost. He said, the apostles speaking uh, many native languages of Jews coming from everywhere at Pentecost is a testimony to God's deep desire to reach out to all people. So in other words, there's a theological significance he derived from them speaking the gospel in many languages. Now, that's not level one. Never says that anyways. And it's not level three because it's not telling you about Luke. But it is talking about the theological reality that stands behind uh, this particular thing. It's a very interesting example about uh, of level two interpretation. And as my wife says, you can't turn it off, can you? And the answer is that's correct. I can't turn it off. So, um, uh, very, uh, uh, very nice sermon, by the way. Very good, far-reaching sermon. Uh, I'm going to have, I notice a number of you have the new Concordia Journal, which has a new um, color here, this dark green, which is approximately the color, official color of Concordia Seminary, uh, with the seal there on the bottom, and the um, uh, names of the articles. Now, you'll notice the first article is preaching the story behind the image, the homiletical fruit of a narrative approach to metaphor. I want to talk about that later in the hour today. This is one of uh, the Ph.D. students here. I'm the reader for his dissertation. Uh, he's actually doing it in the practical department called Theology and Culture, and uh, it, he's related this to preaching, but it's actually about his contention that behind every metaphor, even saying something like, my wife is a rose or something like that, behind every metaphor actually stands a narrative. We'll take a look, um, we'll take a look at that uh, just a little bit later. All right, I want to talk about um, uh, the remainder of the papers that I want to address for Chapter 7 on non-literal speech. And uh, uh, this was a very interesting example from Yellowstone National Park. And he says, how are, referring to the question, how are we to determine if the presented usage is literal or non-literal if little information is provided? For example, one of my buddies walks up to me during our lunch break at Yellowstone National Park and says, boy, I saw a moose today. Discounting the possibility that a moose happened to wander into the area, a likely possibility, how do I know what he is referring to metaphorically, metonymically, or in a cynic-like manner based on the minimal amount of information? Given his cynical attitude, perhaps he was referring to an overweight tourist. Letters certainly function in the same way, and so on and so forth. Uh, and that is an interesting thing, isn't it? So... You have, um, I saw a moose today, could be literal, could be non-literal. When you only have just a little bit of information, you don't know. And um, you're assuming that the person is talking about general size and not like, say, stupidity or something like that. That's where you have to know the cultural side. But that was a very good example. Now, this one, this is pretty good. I think I'm going to have to keep this one. Josh, you knew I would like this. Understanding both the context of the non-literal speech and the meaning of the conceptual signifieds are important to understanding the speech itself. During the summers, while I was in undergrad, I worked at a state campground. One day, while we were cleaning the showers, we found an empty tube of hemorrhoid cream. 
As we were joking about it, one of the women working with us got a weird look on her face. When we questioned her about it, she asked what a hemorrhoid was. After we explained it, mercifully, the paper does not go into this. After we explained it, she had a look of complete shock on her face. Throughout her life, her grandpa had called her his little hemorrhoid. Without ever knowing what the signifier hemorrhoid meant, and based on the context of when the term was used, she thought it was a term of endearment. However, once she understood what it meant, her whole outlook changed. Similarly, <laughs> we need to determine both what the signifiers mean and how they are used within the context of the story and the culture. Now, that really is an interesting one. That is really good. But, uh, um, yeah, which... Which of the features of the conceptual signified are you talking about? Right. Yeah. Sure. Did she start crying? Yeah, what happened? She went home and asked him why he called for that. Yeah. And what when, happened? Apparently when she was really little, she really attached to him more than his, her grandma or anybody else in the extended family. And so whenever he was going somewhere, she was right behind him. Yeah. So he, she was his little hemorrhoid, always right there behind him. All right. Ah, well, now, now, how interesting. Now, how interesting is that? So, in other words, it wasn't necessarily an irritant. Right. Oh, see, he's so he's aiming at certain features. He's using it. This is not a, a kind of a standard or what we would call a dead metaphor. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, like you, you use a phrase like the plague has become sort of a dead metaphor. But this would be one, and I was thinking of irritant, right? But he wasn't actually thinking of something like that. And in fact, <clears throat> we don't want on this video cast to wax eloquent on this, but um, <clears throat> about being behind him actually kind of corresponds. So um, very interesting. Thank you. Uh, so Joe says, under metaphor, you say, it should be noted that entire stories can function in this metaphoric way with the characteristics of the characters, actions, relations, purpose, and so on evoked corresponding to only one or a few of the characteristics of the reference. What do you mean here? I'm thinking of parables. So you tell a story, it functions in this way that some of the stuff transfers and other stuff does not transfer. It's not, so when you have the field is the world and the one who sows is the son of man, you know, and stuff like that. Uh, the, uh, the field and the world have some stuff in common, but all of the world is not dirt or something like that. So uh, uh, I was thinking specifically of parables. Um, now, now you go on. Now listen to this, guys. Are you saying that the characters in a story and their actions represent something more than their literal meaning? Not represent in that case. You're, you're evoking that conceptual signified and you want some of the stuff. You've got, you want some of the stuff to carry over. I would say, and I'm going to go on about this. this a couple of you asked this, and it was very interesting. Uh, not represent, well, let me read the rest of your paper. If so, how is metaphor different from symbolism? See, I would, um, does anybody know, this is interesting, does anybody know what the most recognized symbol in the world is? The cross. I'm, I'm talking, I, the cross is probably right, but I'm actually talking commercially. Commercially. No? No? And this, you know, that's number two, Mickey Mouse ears. A little hemorrhoid. Okay. Mercedes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. Now, that's a symbol. Because 
it actually stands for something else. In other words, you're not saying this. It's not a metaphor in the sense Mercedes has three points of contact between you and the company. See, it's not like that. It's just an alternative to something. This would be just as that collocation of letters is symbolic. There's nothing inherent in that. It stands for something. Words, as written on the page, are symbols in that sense. See, so we're not saying that they're, they're not onomatopoetic or something like that. Um, so I would say, this was a very interesting question. You're not the only one to go in this direction on the chapter questions. Uh, how is metaphor different from symbolism? A symbol, I think, is a thing standing in the place of something else, like that for Mercedes or the ears for Mickey Mouse or something. And whereas metaphor is a verbal phenomenon, I think. So I have to have an utterance. So if I say, we are slogging through this exercise. So that's, you, you have kind of going through a swamp is a metaphor for how hard it is to get through the exercise. I have to verbally talk about that. It's not like that, that swamps stand for exercises, but I'm hoping that some of the characteristics of that conceptual signified transfer over as I put them onto exercise. So it's um, uh, a symbol is, uh, I, I was thinking about this after you asked the question. I think a symbol just sort of stands for something and brings up something else and doesn't particularly have features or characteristics that correspond. Thus the Golden Arches and McDonald's. There's nothing about the arch that actually corresponds to hamburgers or something like that. It is, it is just a set of features that brings up something else. I'm just wondering if an allegory would be like a mix of a symbol and a metaphor. Well, there is. We're going to talk about that when we talk about parables because there is an issue of whether or not there is a difference between parables and allegories. I'm going to contend no, that essentially what it is is that you, um, uh, you tell a story, like in an allegory, and things correspond to other things, but they do have congruent features. See, it seems to me what we're talking about is the, the connection is not between symbol and metaphor, it's between symbol and code. Thus, let's take Morse code. Da, 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 da. What letter is that? Anybody know? No, it's B. <laughs> and maybe one of the most famous ones, you all know this, although you don't know that it is a symbol for this. Da, 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 da. Long, long, short, long. No, did it, did, da, 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 did it, did is SOS. Did it, did is S, da, 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 is O, da, da, da. All right, da, 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 da is Q, and that is the Morse code symbol that is used by all railroads at railroad crossings. So when you hear the whistle, the train's going down, and it's coming to a crossing, you will hear, just exactly like that. Now, each engineer has his own little signature. We live near a railroad. It's very interesting. The big coal trains from Wyoming come somewhat near our house. And you can tell these engineers have their own little imprint. 
as to how they do it. Some of them draw it out. Some of them have it very short and so on like that. But they use Q as the, uh, as the symbol for crossing. Anyway, my point is there's nothing inherent about da 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 being B or da 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 being S. See, that's code, and that's a symbol in that way. I think when you're talking metaphor, um, you are talking about characteristics, some of which actually correspond, actually correspond. And uh, as a result, you have this kind of negotiating to do, just like we were doing with this hemorrhoid thing, about which one. See, I, I wouldn't have thought that thing about following behind. Okay. Uh, that's uh, uh, very interesting. So uh, thank you very much, uh, Joe, for that question. Would the seed, like in the parable of the sower, yeah. you'd consider that a metaphor then because some characteristics correspond with the word that it's implanted? Yeah, 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 right, right. I, I would say th that that's correct. Here, as opposed to this. Christianity, the fish symbol, all right? Now, that is, do you guys all know about the ichthys and, and why it is what it is, the Yoda? How many do not know what this oh, Okay, good. That is a symbol for Christianity. There isn't anything like Christians don't smell when they're out of water or swim or something. There isn't any characteristic that really corresponds to that. Right, right. Okay. Um, now, Andrew, where, oh, Andrew, okay. What wasn't, wasn't sure where you were. You've all kind of switched around back there. I don't know the answer to this, Andrew. After reading the chapter, where would you include hyperbolic statements? hyperbole. I told you a million times. So what is that exactly? It's not literal. Um, it is possibly like synecdoche hole for the part, except you didn't tell anybody anything a million times. So I'm not... Um, uh, I, I'm not sure what to say to that. That's, that's very interesting. I should uh, kind of do some more research. It, it's not, what? New chapter. It's not, um, uh, it's certainly not literal. Certainly not literal. Um, Andy Whedon then had something about... Um, uh, scriptures using slang and so forth. Um, you know, this is possible. We're not exactly sure um, on some occasions. Take your Greek New Testaments. Um, and go to 1 Thessalonians 4.4. 4. 1 Thessalonians 4.4. 4. Now we can pick it up with three. For this is the thelema, the will of God, your sanctification, ap echesthai humas, that you abstain from pornaya, from uh, uh, lustful behavior, hekastun, that each identi. Uh, uh, perfect infinitive of oida, to know, that each of you know how ktasthai, to have, possess his own skoyas, now Andy, means vessel. His own vessel in holiness and honor. Now, is that slang for woman? See, and there's big arguments about that uh, because that's not, that's not exactly a, you know, like meaning number five or something like that. That could well be a, um, 
a slang usage, maybe a usage in Thessalonica. There's some evidence of that. Um, so all of a sudden you come along here to scoy us in this verse. Doesn't seem to exactly fit anything we know. So you figure it's something like that. That there's something going on, local usage, slang usage, something along those lines. Right. That's a, that was a very interesting question. Uh, Chet, Chet, uh, I had down here this, uh, uh, you talked about times of persecution. Did Christians have special signifiers? That fish thing kind of arose then. Right. Um, uh, Ozzy, the question that this chapter evokes for me is, can this language be viewed to help interpret on other levels? Yes, indeed. It seems that it would, especially on level three, because the way an author uses something might be used to speak of the way that author thinks. If an author compares his wife to having beautiful hair like that of black beauty, then compares the athleticism of his son to that of a stallion, one can conceivably conclude that the author enjoys horses. Exactly. See, that's doing level three reading. So all of a sudden you realize that these uh, metaphors or whatever are coming. Well, like for example, the thing about the parable of the sower and the seed. See, you know, Jesus uses a fair amount of parables from everyday life. This is something we'll talk about later, but it's a kind of an important point. Jesus' use of the parables is different from the rabbinic use in, one import, in several ways, but in one important way is that he has a lot of very ordinary examples. He doesn't have a lot of kings. King gave a wedding feast for his son. He's got that. Don't have a lot of royalty. Your main guy is a man went out to sow the seed. All right? Um, this, what would you call it? Uh, common touch, I think indicates, and by the way, it's not all ag agrarian because you have the woman sweeping the house for the coin and you're going to have uh, um, oh, uh, the 99 and one sheep and so on. But it does seem to indicate that he's very comfortable with a peasant level of interaction with society. And not, you know, so that the guy telling the parable is not particularly a guy who spends a lot of time in king's houses. Right. Yeah, very, very nice. Because he's comfortable with that common man type thing, are we to conclude he's trying to make the stories readily accessible to the people, the everyday person, or that he grew up in a household that was very common. Well, see, that's why level three is always such a crapshoot. Because it could be that he's just trying to make them accessible, and then your level three is the teller is a guy who's really aware of his audience, as opposed to where he grew up. Right, I mean, that's why level three is always that issue. Could be both, right? It could be both, and it could, it could indeed be both, right. All right, now, Adrian. In this chapter, we have even more uncertainty especially dealing with the meanings of the non-literal literary devices. On top of that, we should be reading the text on all three levels. It seems like a lot to juggle. It might be because of my accounting and finance background, but I seem to be a very straightforward, systematic, and checklisted-oriented person. Is there a process or a checklist that we can go through in our minds to make sure that we are not missing any step and so forth? Uh, no. This is all a kind of a fluid move, and things will come to you in various orders. Now, for example, let's just take the point Ozzy raised. So you have uh, somebody giving these parables, Jesus is giving the parables, and you start reading them on level three. Well, you might read on level three before you even took time to decipher the parables which is really just a level one move, and then to interpret the significance of them. But he's made a level three move. You never even thought of making that move. See, so there, I have in your uh, supplementary exercises stuff, 
I have a kind of a list that you can go down. You do this on level one. You take a look at stuff at level two. Maybe there's stuff on level three. You got pragmatics and all that. In actual life, though, it tends to actually come to you just as it comes to you. You know, and then the last point I would make is you do want to make sure, though, that you are rigor- rigorously self-reflective on what you're doing so that you're not saying, of course. You're not saying, oh, well, maybe I better actually think of le- on level two. I haven't been thinking about that. So you, you should have you know, various items. But um, uh, now, I don't know, did you guys bring along... Do you happen to have along that supplemental material? How many have it? Uh, just a few guys. Uh, so we, we won't refer to it. But uh, back it, toward the latter part of that, let me see if I can get a page number here. Lay my hands on this. Oh, yeah, here it is. It's pages 20 and 21. And so, Mark, this sort of pertains to this. Interpreting a text, steps to follow. There, there are some of these steps, and so if you take a look, let me put this under the uh, camera here. Um, so this is called Interpreting a Text, Steps to Follow, and I talk about textual criticism here, uh, level one, level two, level three, pragmatics and application, and then I kind of lay it out, what is involved in all of that. But what I would want to emphasize is in the actual process, it won't tend to just go ba bum ba bum ba bum, you know. So uh, you know, pra- pragmatics. What what this is is sort of a checklist of uh, make sure you do participate in in the steps at some point. Yeah. So don't forget about level two. Yeah. Right. But uh, so uh, pages twenty and twenty one of the supplemental material will give you you know, more or less the things you ought to be taking a look at. That was a, that was a very, good, uh, very good inquiry there. Mark, the, what you had about the birds and the nests, I think I'm going to save that for the parables. That was a very interesting thing that you brought up with that, that sort of deciphering, and I hadn't really actually uh, known about that before. JB, we don't quite have time to go with your... Uh, Josh rode his bike to Des Moines, uh, but you did... You did real. I want to acknowledge you really did try to develop that in a way that I found very helpful. As a matter of fact, which uh, brings me to Nick's paper. Nick's not here today, and this is similar to what you said, and that is, uh, let me just read from Josh Brown's paper. He says, a discussion of the non-literal interpretation must fall under the second and third levels of interpretation, and Nick said. It seems like when you are interpreting a metaphor and deciding which characteristics correspond, it's a matter of level two. I wouldn't have thought that, but I will respect your analysis on that point. Um, I don't think it's level two because you are saying something and uh, planning on some of the characteristics uh, uh, corresponding. If you're interpreting on level two, first of all, it tends to be a little bit more narrative-like. Of course, yours was a narrative. And um, it is focusing on the meaning of the thing itself. It is not focusing on the language and the few characteristics I'm trying to get across. So I think it is more level one, but I'm going to respect your analysis on this and take a further look at that. Okay? So I wanted to acknowledge both those guys brought up some very interesting points. Now, the final thing before we move into Chapter 8. I would like you to take the Concordia Journal that we just... Uh, 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 thank you very much, Andy, for picking... Yeah, okay, fine. Um, Thanks a lot for that. Now, 
I want you guys to take a look at the first one, preaching the story behind the image, the homiletical fruit of a narrative approach to metaphor. Now, this happens to be on page 9, first article uh, in, the, in the thing. And the introduction is very interesting. A few years back, I heard a soloist from a local performance of Mozart's Requiem interviewed on the radio, and she was talking about the Agnus Dei, and she lamented that every time she sings a requiem, she feels badly, badly, for that poor little lamb. Obviously, she misunderstood the, ref, the metaphor, lamb of God. But it is only obvious she misunderstood the metaphor if you know the Agnus Dei is about the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. That is, a lamb taking away sins is a lamb in a sacrificial system. And that Jesus' death on the cross can be understood in terms of substitutionary sacrifice for the removal of sin. The metaphor Lamb of God for Jesus only works, if it does, because of a broader implied narrative, and here's his point, that entails what can be expected from a lamb in this kind of sacrificial setting. The metaphor I am Jesus' little lamb uses the same vocabulary word but has an entirely different meaning. This time the lamb has a pastoral setting, not a sacrificial one. And I am not a lamb in the same way Jesus is. Now the metaphor implies a shepherd, a protector, perhaps even a green pasture, and still waters. Guilt, blood, and sacrifice are no longer in view. Now here's Justin's point. We have changed the implied narrative, the story behind the image, and have therefore changed the meaning and implication of the metaphor. Now, what he does, if you'll turn the page and go to page 11, you'll see this diagram of what's called the actantual model. It's a model of actors in a story. And this is um, a French structuralist, Grima, is the guy who came up with this. pronounced Grima, or J.B., as you would say, Grimaz. Um, it is uh, it's a, a structuralist uh, um, outline of the way stories are ineluctably formed. That is to say that narratives will have these various things. There will be a sender with an object to a receiver. There will be a subject who um, uh, does some work in this. He'll have a helper, and there will be an opponent. Now, if you turn the page once again to page 12, you will see that he seeks, Justin I'm talking about now, seeks to do this with the stories. This is what he calls... Now take a look here. The implied narrative structure of the metaphor. Now this is the metaphor, this first one, of the Lamb of God, i.e., the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay? So you have a Lamb. Well, God is attempting to give forgiveness to sinners. You have a Lamb who brings this forgiveness. The Helper is God, the, God's promise the substitutionary atonement system, and the problem with all this is there's guilt and wrath of God against sin, something like this. Now, I am Jesus' little lamb is this one down here. Here you have a wolves wandering away and so forth. There's a shepherd, like say this could be God himself, who wants to give safety to the lamb. The, the, uh, there's a shepherd's staff and so forth with love for the sheep. The shepherd is the guy who does this. I would probably put up here for shepherd. I'd maybe put, like, say, owner of the sheep or something like that. Uh, but there are wolves and wandering and so forth. So the idea, take a look at this article. This is a really great article. He's, this is his doctoral dissertation. What he contends is if you say, as an example, if you say, uh, you're talking about basketball, and you say, boy, look at that guy down in the paint. All right? 
He's a real bear. Now, his contention is the characteristics you're looking for out of bear depend upon what narrative you're thinking of, like a female bear protecting her cubs, ferocity, focused on what you want to do and not being deterred, all that kind of stuff, as opposed to hibernating. That's a different story. What happens during January and February? The bear is in a cave. It's not got a lot of action to it. It's lethargic. It's hibernating. Different story now, see? So you don't mean that story when you say the power forward is a bear down in the paint. You mean the prior story of a mother bear protecting her cubs. Uh, Take a look at this article. It's a very interesting take on this. He broached this in a class of mine about five years ago now. And I remember him saying this, and I I just kind of laughed it off. You know, I said, oh, come on. You know, he said, my wife is a rose or something. And he's able to work this out. And it's very interesting how this works out with a lot of very key metaphors uh, in the New Testament. So I bring this to your attention. It's quite serendipitous that this should happen to come out right when we're on this chapter, but, um, uh, but it has. And, J.B., I would say, going back to your idea of, uh, you know, is this level two, see, this, this analysis would argue against it. This analysis would argue, like in Chapter 8, what you're doing, uh, really more Chapter 9, what you're doing is you're filling in more signifiers. You're filling in more of the story when you're doing a metaphor. You're not, you're not doing some deeper significance. You're just saying other stuff that's happening. That would be his, his analysis of this. So take a look, and uh, uh, as, as a matter of fact, it is terribly helpful for the homiletical enterprise, for preaching. Uh, you're going to find that, uh, that article to be very good. Okay, any, um, any final Uh, questions or issues on this uh, because we'll be going then to uh, chapter 8. Yes, go ahead. A question about the characteristics of the bread and the body when we say this is my Oh yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. body, um, Mm -hmm. we take that literally. I'm not sure quite what it is that you're asking. If we say this is this is my body. The bread has certain characteristics, but the body has certain characteristics. Mm-hmm. They don't, there's no... Not 100% correspondence. Yeah, there's just not very much correspondence. Right, right, right. Um, and now, all right, now what's your specific question? Uh, how can we say that it is literal if there's not, not 100% correspondence? <clears throat> uh, I wasn't actually, you know, what's kind of interesting is I wasn't actually talking about the signifier body. I was talking about is. This actually is. I mean, a person could argue your point that body is not literal, but it is real. Okay, not literal, but it is real, such that you take it into your mouth. Uh, You know, something similar would be saying that the church is the body of Christ. I mean, after all, I think this is just great. In Acts 9, when the light shines on Saul on the road, and Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He had actually persecuted the Christians, who are his body, but their body in a different way than the body that hung on the cross, which is the literal body. Okay. Uh, now, when you say this is my body, um, what what you're trying to negotiate is another deeper spiritual reality. Remember, the actual statement is not the bread is my body. Okay. It is not the bread is my body. Then I would have to say that at that point, your, your point is, is correct. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you take a look 
take your Greek New Testaments and take a look at Matthew 26 to the institution of the Lord's Supper. Now, this is a very good question. Thanks a lot for this, John. Uh, let's see. Okay. Um, verse uh, 26, 26, John. Tuta estin, my body. Interestingly enough, it's not hutas, which would be masculine. So it is actually tuta which is singular neuter. It is not this, which is singular masculine. There may be something in this. See, so it's not like this piece of bread in that sense. It's this which I have is my body. I'm thinking that the neuter aspect of it helps you to take your focus solely off the bread and say there's something more, you know, what I have in my hand. It would be kind of more like saying that, okay? Um, now, it is body, but this is why when I was talking about this the other day, I said it's the divine superadditum that gets you here. See, you, you would never think of this as being in any sense is meaning is. This truly is my body. If you didn't have the incarnate Son of God who is omnipresent. So that all of a sudden just gives you a lot more possibilities. Yeah. But uh, that, that's very good. But the statement is not, the bread is my body. It, it isn't exactly worded that way. Okay. Good. Now, let's proceed to chapter 8. Now, chapter 8, as I mentioned, is one of the really difficult chapters in this book because it's kind of technical. What we're going to... No, Ficken? You don't think it is? No, I didn't hear what you said. Okay. Uh, <laughs> this is another level one chapter in that we are talking about the meaning of the vocables the meaning of the marks on the page. The overall theme of this chapter would be <clears throat> that essentially a text is like Swiss cheese. It's got a lot of blanks in it, and what you are doing when you interpret, you are trying to fill in the blanks Here's a way I'd rather say it. Here's a way I'd rather say it. Every linguistic utterance is shorthand. And you have to fill in the longhand. That's a better way to say it. Everything is shorthand. You're filling out the longhand. Now, this makes it pretty difficult because how do you fill out the longhand? That's a big, big part of the problem. Now, I think it's worthwhile dividing this chapter essentially. We're going to do that. We're going to divide it essentially in two. And that is the first half has to do with things like blanks in the text and the holes and so on like that. The second half has to do with this external entailment business. And that part, I'm going to sort of speak Lutheran now. Same, it, it, it's, it's more like an acorn that can grow up into a tree or a bud that blossoms to be a flower. It's more like that. Whatever it is, in the whole chapter, we're saying that virtually every linguistic utterance, whether spoken or written, is shorthand. And you have to fill out the longhand. Now, you just got to recognize that. I have a question. 
yeah. happens if a person intentionally uses the long hand to the best of their ability? Because I don't know if it's possible to not. Yes, it is. You know what that's called? Legal documents. The party of the first part is going to deal with the party of the second part, and the party of the second part, in its dealing with the party of the first, that's longhand. And it is completely cumbersome and almost non-understandable because we do not talk like that. Yeah, that would be an example right there. Now, I had uh, at least four important things in the first part of the chapter, grammatically incomplete sentences, grammatically complete sentences, where you still have some shorthand, alternatives, and repeated signifiers. Now, what I want to just make sure that everybody understands is how there really are these grammatically incomplete sentences which you or anybody else watching this video is generally not going to be aware of because any vernacular translation will always seek to smooth this out. So, Take a look at 2 Thessalonians 2. Second, 2 Thessalonians. 2 verse 7. For the mystery already is working of lawlessness. Now look at this, the last part of this verse. Only... The masculine singular, ha kat echon, the one grabbing or grasping, right now, until out of the middle it comes to be. Well, that's clear as mud. So what about this only the one grabbing, grasping, holding back? What about it? There's no main verb in this verse. The heos begins a subordinate clause. That's governing the genetai. Until something or other, not stated, genetai comes to be ekmesu out of the midst. Now, does that mean only let the one grasping remain, or it is there until, let it be. And what is the thing that's supposed to come out of the midst? Is it the grasping thing? Is it something else until something else happens or comes to be? Now, Hutch, you have a translation there. Let's hear what it says. Okay. Um... Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. All right, see, now, will do so isn't there, literally. Until he is out of the way, well, genetai is to come to be, so it could be to come to be out of the midst in the sense of getting out of the midst, or it could be that it arises out of the midst of something. Here's the problem. This is like sort of Boku shorthand or something like that. By the way, I might just notice, note for you, that uh, this is sort of prophetic kind of talk, and we find this in the Old Testament, like in Isaiah 7.14, the virgin passage. All of a sudden you get these... Uh, kind of future-looking passages, and the grammar goes into the tank on you. It's, it, it's like it's purposeful. Um, that all of a sudden has some very old and archaic forms and so on. So the point that I want to make with this passage is literally there are words that aren't there that people are filling in. You've got to recognize that. Now take a look at, this is, uh, this is not uh, uh, really uh, discussed in the book, John 20, John 20. This is, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. 
If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. You know that passage. 2023. That on is probably on, that means if. If of someone you forgive the sins, so if you forgive the sins of someone, they are in a forgiven condition, perfect tense, to them. If of someone you hold on, they are held on. Well, now, what is that tinone? If of someone. I guess you're assuming that sins is in there. If the sins of someone, then they are held on to. Wait, Dubkey. Let's go on to the next point. Do you realize that the verb krateo can take the genitive by itself? And when it does take the genitive, it means to hold on to or to hold close. Hebrews 4 has an example where you hold on to and retain the good confession. Holy smoke! Now we go to the second of these points. We may actually have a grammatically complete one here, in which case this verse can be understood completely differently in the last part. And it would go like this. The tinone at the last part would be the genitive, the object of krateta. There's not a shorthand at all. In which case it is, if you hold on to somebody, some people, they are held on to, meaning something like this. So the first part would be, if you forgive people's sins, they're forgiven. And if you retain and hold on to them in the community, they are kept in the community. I have just completely reversed that passage. And that's because what I've done is instead of thinking that it's a passage that has giant blanks in it where there are things missing, I have now said, no, no. Instead, I'm going to take it as a grammatically complete passage. And you can actually do that. It it works linguistically. Here's the problem when you have these kinds of issues uh, with syntax. Okay, look, we're uh, about out of time. Uh, Next time, we'll be taking your questions. Now, for the next time, I want you, please, to make sure you do and bring to class exercises 11 and 12 on hypocoe, obedience, and especially number 12, Claytus, called. Called. So on that one, what we're going to be looking for is what is the external entailment of Claytus? And you've got to do work on Kaleo there. Okay, good. We'll see you next time.